I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Fort. Carl has the morning off. Today, a ton of movers to get to. We are talking Airbnb, Intuit, Match, Paramount, and EA. We'll hear what management is saying about the consumer inflation, hiring, and how that is all impacting results. Plus, Zoom Info and Chegg, they are heading in opposite directions this morning. The CEOs of both those companies, they're with us this hour. And finally, two big bear calls, B of A double downgrading Twilio. Meanwhile, Evercore laying out seven reasons to sell block, John. Wow, that's a lot. But we've got yet another angle for you to start our feed this morning, and that is Chips AMD confirming the PC slowdown they warned about a month ago. Still bullish on data center, though, and that stock is higher so far this morning. We're also going to get more data on the difference in demand between consumers versus auto and industrial customers when Qualcomm reports tonight. Christina Parts is with us for more on both companies. Hey, Christina. Now, hello, John. So, like you mentioned, data center sales really helped cushion the blow with AMD's latest earnings. You had a miss on the top and bottom line, Q4 guided lower, and that's because of weaker PC sales driving the client segment closer to what I could maybe call a bottom, down 40% year over year. AMD CEO says PC sales will actually continue to decline in Q4 and in 2023, down 10%, but Q3 data center revenue was what increased 45% year over year, and that's helping drive the stock about 3% higher right now. I also want to point out AMD says the U.S. export rules to China would have a minimal impact on revenue. And today, the Nikkei is reporting that Tokyo is in talks with Washington to create its own set of tech restrictions for China. Similar discussions are pretty much ongoing with South Korea and the EU, so that could be good when you have allies joining the United States. But back to AMD. So AMD is still dealing with weak PC markets. So where does that leave Qualcomm, given its high exposure to consumer end markets? The stock you can see is down 19%, reflecting a slowdown in 5G adoption, as well as weak China smartphone sales, but still falls in line with the SMH and the SOX ETF during that same time frame, six months. Both uh, Morgan Stanley and Bernstein suggest Qualcomm's valuation right now is really compelling, quite cheap, and long-term suggest the auto sector segments, as well as the Internet of Things segments, will help drive future revenue. You'll just have to endure the near-term pain, possibly for Q4 first. Yeah, Christina, what, what I'm looking at when it comes to Qualcomm, which investors still have time to think about and position themselves for, is the China market in part. But then the, the premium end of the smartphone business continued to do relatively better. That's where Qualcomm is strong. And also those growth areas that they have in industrial IoT and in automotive, that shift toward electrification, uh, toward um, autonomous driving still happening. And and they're in a pretty good position there. So I guess it's a question of uh, how much of that is priced in and what do investors, investors react more to, huh? Yeah, so two points to that. So the high-end market you're referring to is Samsung, right? So Qualcomm recently announced that they're going to be not only uh, having their chips in Samsung uh, smartphones, but everything to tablets. So that'll be a good driver for 2023. Then you also have the fact that Qualcomm's customer is has Apple as a customer. There's been reports that maybe Apple will hang on a little bit longer beyond 2023. So that could further add uh, to revenues going forward. 
to your point about the auto segment. So yes, that is a, a huge growth. It's 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 a driver. But don't you think that it could be considered a long term driver and the near term benefits may not necessarily uh, yep. grow over the next little while? So that's something that I'm thinking we, they use it as a narrative like NXP. You know, they talked about auto being a strong segment, mm -hmm. but this is something that's going to be long term, maybe not so much in the next you know, two quarters, three quarters. Right. Well, well, two chip companies that actually are benefiting from auto at the moment that we've heard from, that's Wolfspeed and on Semi, their exposure there, also their development of silicon carbide products. Where is Qualcomm positioned at this moment? I know that Cristiano Amon likes to talk about it. How much do they actually derive from that uh, category? You mean specifically from silicon carbide, which from, is a little bit auto, different. That serves the auto. So auto, if you were to join auto as well as IoT as one segment group, it actually increased about 35% just last quarter. So can that, and this is year over year, of course, year over year. So can that continue? That's the big question. And it is, it's a huge portion of their business. And so many chip companies are focusing more on auto because it's considered more resilient. Why mm -hmm. is that? Because cars are going to be giant computers. Everybody's electrifying. Everybody's creating EVs. And so chip companies want a piece of that market. Qualcomm is definitely one of the stronger players in the market when it comes to auto. That's no doubt. Christina, thank you for your insights. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Well, as we've been talking about chips at large, though some areas of it have been hit less hard than others. Um, but the sector as a whole has really been rebounding over the last month. The Fed, of course, remains in focus. Another 75 basis point hike expected this afternoon. So what are some of the other names in tech that have made a recent comeback? Dom Chu is with us and has a look at stocks that have rallied and have fallen since the last Fed rate hike. Dom. September 21st, 2022, so a little over a month ago is when we got that last catalyst for interest rates. And what it's done for the overall market has been some, at least triggering some volatility. If you take a look at the NASDAQ 100 and the big ETF that tracks it, the QQQ, we're down roughly 3% during that time span. But as you can see here, during that little move here that we've seen, it's been down, then up, then down again. But on balance, a roughly 3 to 4% loss for the NASDAQ 100 overall during that last span between the last interest rate hike till today. So among those stocks within technology, communication services, and consumer discretionary, the ones that are most closely tied to that technology ecosystem, there have been 28 members of those three sectors, 156 stocks total, 28 members have rallied by at least 10% or more since the last Fed rate hike. Those names include Netflix up 16%, Juniper Networks up 15%, and Oracle up about 12.25%, all since September 21st. So there's where there has been some positive momentum. As for the flip side of that coin, what are the stocks among those 156 in those three sectors that have fallen by 10% or more since that last Fed rate meeting? A number of factors obviously factoring into this particular trade, but still, the momentum has been decidedly downwards for names like Meta Platforms down 36% in that span, Tesla down 27%, and Advanced Micro Devices down 19%. That's all between the 21st of September through yesterday's close. So if you're looking for, guys, where there has been that relative momentum on the upside and downside, look towards names like that. Ah, so hard, Dom, to suss out how much of that is currency, how much of that is other factors that, that have to do with uh, slowing consumer demand. H how do you think about those other factors when you're looking at you know, the action from one meeting to the next? You, you have to look at all of them. But, but the point being right now, the valuation argument has been at play for a long time for many of these names. 
And with interest rates, every time there is a move higher, that valuation discussion becomes first and foremost, again, how much you're willing to pay in terms of stock price for every dollar in earnings that these companies generate. What there has been is decided downtrends in many of these names, especially in tech, comm services, and consumer discretionary. But the ones that have bounced off those may signal, at least in some portion, that the valuations have gotten attractive enough, Mm -hmm. right, where those downtrends might be reversed, as opposed to names that have been in downtrends and continue to be in those ones as well. But, you know, Deirdre, John, this idea right now that valuations are a big concern still plays first and foremost if you have a Fed that continues to be on a Mm -hmm. path of more aggressive interest rate hikes. Right, and that's certainly in focus today. Uh, Dom, too, thanks so much. One of the stocks that has struggled at least over the last uh, month or so is Airbnb, down 8% this morning, 40% year-to-date. The company forecasts fourth-quarter revenue that was in line with consensus. But, John, there was a thinking perhaps that the street wanted a little bit more because this is a company that does command a premium to hotels and other OTAs, the online travel agencies. I tend to agree with Jim Cramer here and that the market's kind of judging it, judging those results harshly. It was record profitability, um, better than ever revenue. So it, it was a good set of results in terms of going into the quarter ahead. There is this big question. Will people go back to the cities? Will people go back to hotels? You could argue that Airbnb is still well placed there in the pandemic and post pandemic. Um, but what we've seen generally over the last few weeks, that sort of letdown in big tech, uh, John, when we saw those earnings and this week, we'll call it the week of unprofitable tech, it hasn't been so uniform. I mean, you've got the likes of Uber actually popping after those results, even though they're still losing money. We're going to talk about Zoom Info and Chegg, which is up huge today. Yeah, and some of it has to do with expectations, right? You, you can't, they're not all starting from the same point. People felt like Airbnb was doing pretty great relative to others leading into this print. And so the reaction is based off of that. Whereas Chegg, boy, did they take a beating last quarter. You know, there's probably yeah. some short interest playing into that. So we got to zoom out to, to borrow the, the Zoom part of Zoom info that we're going to talk to in just a bit. And, and think about the overall context here. Part of it with Airbnb, too, was how transparent they're going to be on pricing, right? And some analysts questioning how that's going to impact consumer behavior. Yeah, that's a good point. That average daily rate um, expected to peter out as well, which may be a good sign for inflation if you want to take it that way. But, you know, John, we've spent so much time talking about unprofitable tech and, you know, the rock solid balance sheets of big tech. The narrative that we've kind of had is that big tech is still spending a lot while unprofitable tech has really been focused on reining in costs. So as a result, you see more than a billion dollar profit from Airbnb. You see better unit economics from Uber and even good old gap profit from the likes of Chegg. I prefer not yet profitable tech for some of these because, you know, the models look pretty good. The net revenue retention looks okay, though, uh, with Zoom Info in particular. I think we're going to get another turn of the screw looking at what net revenue retention really means in a slowing economy. Now let's turn to some news that moves stocks in the social sector. FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr saying the U.S. should ban TikTok. Snap and Meta both getting a boost on that yesterday, although slightly lower this morning. Carr joined Squawk on the street earlier this morning. Take a listen. What I've seen so far from the reporting of the TikTok officials is they're not convinced that there's any deal that can be worked out that will still prevent uh, Beijing officials from getting access to it. At the end of the day, according to the leaked materials, they say these are tools that were built uh, by Beijing. A couple interesting things about this, Julia. One, this isn't exactly the FCC's area. I mean, Brendan Carr's 
freelancing a bit here. I, I guess he's he's free to do that. But then also, can you imagine TikTok just being banned at this point? Well, look, that's right. It's important to remember that Brendan Carr is one of five FCC commissioners. The FCC does not have jurisdiction over TikTok. This is really up to CFIUS, which is part of the Treasury. And CFIUS is currently from what we understand, in negotiations with TikTok about how to manage a potential divestiture. So that is in the works, although CFIUS won't comment on it because they say they won't comment on things that may or may not be happening. But I just have to point out why we saw uh, that that bump up in the Meta and uh, Snap shares as a result of this. It's because TikTok is simply massive. We got some new numbers from Sensor Tower. They say it's been uh, installed 324 million times um, in the U.S. alone and that TikTok is reaching 4 billion downloads worldwide. So this is a massive, massive force. It is, of course, a threat to Meta and Snap and others. But I think what's really important here and the reason why the stocks are not maintaining those gains is because, John, CFIUS is more likely to make it challenging for TikTok mm -hmm. to operate, but it is likely going to still operate. I can't, I think it would be very hard to shut it down entirely. The question right. is just whether it's forced to be divested to a U.S.-based company. And maybe there are audits or things like that. Right. And even in China, where a lot of um, U.S. technology like Google search engine, Twitter's banned, uh, people find ways around it. Got the great firewall of China that people can get through. Um, I thought it was interesting what Commissioner Carr said on the previous hour. He said that TikTok is feeding, training and improving Beijing's AI, which it uses in authoritarian ways. And that's at the root of this, right, Julia, is that algorithm that TikTok has developed. I wonder if you think that it's still a superior algorithm than reels, the technology at the heart of it. Is that what makes TikTok stickier, arguably more successful than Meta's reels? Well, and I just have to correct myself, Deirdre, it's 342 million. That's how many downloads it's had in the U.S. So, look, it's interesting because so many companies have called out TikTok as a, as a force, as a, as a sort of reason why their growth was hampered. But in this most recent quarter, Mark Zuckerberg said they're actually making progress um, against TikTok and their Reels um, algorithm is working and they're able to draw um, increasing engagement here. So, John, I think that's the thing to watch. Obviously, TikTok has a particular special sauce. Meta has a different use case, but a lot of companies are really trying to embrace that format that TikTok has mastered and to varying degrees of success. But it'll be really interesting to see if there's anything that can hold back TikTok's growth. Maybe not a full ban, but maybe some sort of auditing or regulatory oversight that would prevent them from growing as quickly as they have been. Yeah. Which, which politician and political party wants to take credit for banning something so popular to the youngs be a lot right of now. angry teenagers yeah um and young voters in general uh but not to say that's not uh still a good reason to do it uh julia thank you let's get a check now on twilio bank of america double downgrading the stock this morning ahead of the company's investor day tomorrow frank holland has more on that downgrade what to expect for investor day frank Hey there, John. Shares of Twilio down almost 6% after that big downgrade from B of A ahead of its investor day. Shares were outperforming the S&P. Before that note, raised some serious questions about Twilio's ability to compete in the $10 billion customer platform as a service market, or CPAS. Huge price target cut, noting increasing competition and pricing challenges in a potentially recessionary environment. So those players trying to get in the biz include Salesforce, Adobe, and Microsoft. I've spoken to Salesforce, and they say customers are becoming increasingly concerned about a future without cookies. Cookies, of course, are small files created when you visit a website. Some are used by advertisers to track your habits and have raised some privacy concerns. 
Analysts say that's creating a huge tailwind for customer platforms as a service or again, CPAS. That's expected to see 30 percent growth over the next three years as Google moves towards eliminating third party cookies by 2024. Seventy five percent of the global population will live in a country with, quote unquote, modern modern privacy regulations by the end of 2024. And it will cost the average S&P company roughly two and a half million a year to manage privacy regulations, according to Gartner. Tomorrow during its investor day, Twilio is expected to lay out its vision for the CPAS market and that cookie-less future. CEO Jeff Lawson in the past has said the company will be B2C focused. Other companies expected to benefit from what one analyst has called a data gold rush include Akame and Palantir. They report their earnings next week. Also Splunk. John, back over to you. Frank, thank you. CEOs of ZoomInfo and Chegg. Speaking of security and privacy, coming up, Tech Check, just getting started. Welcome back. Paramount shares, they are moving lower this morning. Julia is back with us and has more in the quarter. Julia. Paramount shares plummeting more than 11% on lower revenue and earnings than expected as the company suffers from cord cutting and also declining ad revenue. Ad revenue at Paramount's TV networks declined 3% for a 5% decline in revenue in that TV media segment. The company warning they do expect those mac- that macro weakness in the ad market to continue into the fourth quarter. There was a bright spot though. Direct-to-consumer streaming subscribers grew faster than expected. And Paramount CEO Bob Backish said they expect healthy fourth quarter subscriber growth and to exceed their full year forecast of 75 million global streaming subscribers. Backish saying of Paramount Plus, which added 4.6 million subs for a total of 46 million, that they are confident they can raise prices and do so in a way that minimizes churn. He also said of some new ad-supported rivals, such as Netflix, that those streamers validate the strategy of Pluto, which became the first ad-supported platform to reach 1% of all TV viewership in the U.S. J.P. Morgan, with a neutral rating on the stock, saying they believe management has put an appropriate strategy in place for a difficult time in legacy media. But stock is down dramatically today, John. Well, you talk about down dramatically, Julia. Thanks. Let's get into one of the biggest earnings movers now of the morning. Zoom Info down more than 22 percent despite a beat on the top and bottom in Q3, posting a miss on billings, cutting free cash flow guidance for the year. Joining us now for a closer look in a CNBC exclusive, ZoomInfo CEO, Henry Shuck. Henry, good to have you. So um, the, the late quarter increase in deal scrutiny, uh, interesting here. It was more Europe and larger deals uh, a quarter ago, but now it's expanded. Give some more color on um, exactly how quickly that happened and, and how pervasive you think that's going to, to be for how long. Yeah, thanks again for having me, John. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, look, like you said, we had a great quarter. We beat on the top line. We beat on the bottom line. Most tech companies don't have a bottom line to beat on. We're running this business profitably. We grew the top line 46%. We grew. Uh, we had 41% operating margins. You're in Deirdre. We're talking about big tech companies having profitability and other tech companies, the smaller ones, having a path to it. We're already there. So we're driving great unit economics in our business. Now, what we saw in the quarter and what you've heard from software companies for the last four months is this idea of sales cycle elongation. And I think what what they're not explaining or what hasn't been explained is what does that actually mean in the business when a sales cycle elongates? What it actually means is that your reps, your frontline account managers, your frontline account executives, 
they're spending more time for the same outcome, more calls, more emails, more video uh, demonstrations, more executive review with a CFO or a global CFO. And so all of that makes your capacity be, be constrained. And so what we saw with our account management team on the customer side is that their capacity got constrained because of the sales cycle elongation. And then and what that caused was us not being able to upsell and cross-sell at the same rates as we have historically. And that's how the sales cycle elongation is going to manifest in, in, in companies, right. is it's going to eat away at capacity. Well, this also brings me to uh, kind of revisiting the idea of net revenue retention, because I think I and probably investors in general have been sort of looking at this as a gauge of uh, loyalty and how healthy a core product is. But it seems like as we pay more attention to this in software, probably for the first time during a real slowdown, when headcount isn't growing so fast at these customers, when you get those capacity issues that you talked about, and when data expansion isn't happening as much, they don't have as much just data flowing into the system, even if they're still liking and using the product, the net revenue retention yep. number is going to go down, isn't it? Yeah, so there's there's two ways to think about net revenue retention. Or net revenue retention is made up of two things. One, sort of gross revenue retention or churn. In our business, we see our gross revenue retention staying stable uh, compared to last year. Now, what the other part of net revenue retention is upsell and cross-sell within your existing account base. Mm -hmm. And so your ability to keep your customers, that's one thing, and that's a great sign of loyalty. And we've seen uh, we've seen really good numbers there. Your ability to upsell and cross-sell, if sales cycles get elongated, all of a sudden your capacity restrained there, and that's what's gonna hurt your net revenue retention. But, but one more piece of time. that, one more piece of that, if customers had been using more seats over time, just in the same product, they were spending more getting the same thing. But if they don't need as many seats, either because they're not hiring or because they're actually cutting, sure. doesn't that affect net revenue retention? Yeah, absolutely. Net revenue retention, a part of net revenue retention can be expansion of seats. It can be expansion of functionality. It can be expansion of data credits for us, for example. For us, we're not penetrated across uh, nearly any of our cu our customers wall to wall, and so don't, we don't rely on the next user, the next hire to add a new user seat. And most of our companies, we might be penetrated across 10, 15, 20 percent uh, of the user base that we can attract. And so our job then is to go find the additional users who are already there to get our software in front of, to drive efficiencies in their go-to-market motions. Um, and so if you are wall to wall already. Yes, then if you're not hiring or you're cutting, that becomes a headwind. We see tremendous opportunity within our accounts to continue to expand. Um, we're not reliant on that next hire for that expansion. Right, Henry, but you are relying on cross-selling or upselling, right? And you said, yeah. did you just say that you haven't been able to do that like you have historically in this environment? Yeah, I would look in this environment, mainly because of that sales cycle elongation. Okay, but Henry, sorry, just... Our, yeah. On that point, though, I understand that that may be harder in that environment, but that feels concerning because maybe others can have an easier time doing that. They can bundle and have more pricing power in this environment, like bigger tech companies that can offer that bundle. Does that put you at a disadvantage here? 
Yeah, it's actually a great question. Um, over the last two years, what we built at ZoomInfo is an end-to-end go-to-market platform. We started with data and intelligence, and from there we built in sales automation, conversation intelligence. We built in intent data and B2B chat so that our customers today have an end-to-end platform story that they can get behind. And so we saw big consolidation opportunities within our customer base. We consolidated uh, companies off of multiple point solutions, including Rider Systems, Taylor Corporation, USI, where they took multiple point solutions in their go-to-market tech stack and they consolidated onto Zoom Info. And so that consolidation opportunity that we're hearing from the market, they're saying, look, we don't want a whole bunch of vendors anymore. We want just a few strategic vendors in our go-to-market tech stack. That puts us in a great position to come in and give them the opportunity to consolidate multiple point solutions onto Zoom Info. And that's been a, t- uh, been a talk track and a strategy that's been landing for our customers. Uh, Henry, we appreciate the added insight on the quarter and on the industry as, hey, in this macro environment, the Fed continues to pump the brakes. Uh, Henry Schuck from Zoom Info. Great. Thank you for having me. After the break, we'll look ahead at how to play Qualcomm results. Plus, take another look at AMD. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Welcome back to Check Check. I'm Bertha Coombs. Here's your CNBC News update. Ford says U.S. vehicle sales fell 10% in October compared to a year ago. U.S. automakers have seen uneven sales trends this year as they deal with supply chain issues that have resulted in volatile inventory levels. However, Ford's sales through October are just about the same as they were for the same period a year ago. The U.S. economy added 239,000 private sector jobs in October, according to the monthly report from ADP. That was more than expected and is part of a reason that stocks are a bit under pressure today. Investors fear that stronger than expected economic news will just prompt the Fed to continue raising rates for longer. Wheat prices are falling more than 6% today. That comes after Russia said it would resume its participation in a deal to export grain from Ukraine. It had pulled out of that deal over the weekend, saying the war between Russia and Ukraine endangered the safety of civilian ships crossing the Black Sea. And shares of Cheesecake Factory are getting sliced and diced today after the restaurant chain reported an unexpected quarterly loss. It's not the customers aren't coming in. It's that bills for electricity and building maintenance have soared. It's all of those costs that keep rising, John. Back to you. Yeah. Um, Bertha, thanks. Boeing shares popping in the last few minutes. Let's get to Phil LeBeau for a market flash. Phil? John, we are getting guidance from Boeing for the first time since 2019, the company holding an analyst day. A couple of big headlines. Dave Calhoun, CEO of the company, says the target for free cash flow on an annual basis 10 billion by 2025, 2026. That gets them back to pre-max crash levels in terms of free cash flow. In terms of the max, they will be increasing production next year. It's about 375 being delivered this year. They expect to deliver 400 to 450 next year. And then in 25 and 26 or 26, they expect deliveries to essentially double from where they are right now to 800 a year. Call is still going on. They're still talking with analysts. We'll have more a little bit later on. Deirdre, back to you. Phil about thank you. Those shares up 4.5%. Let's turn to chips now. Big week ahead for earnings in the space. Qualcomm today after the bell. Microchip Tuesday. And, of course, AMD and NXPI moving higher today on their latest results. There's a new note out today from Piper Sandler cutting its price target for NXPI. Let's bring in Piper Sandler's Harsh Kumar. Harsh, 
Great to have you this morning. Where are we broadly in terms of valuations in the chip space? Have all the headwinds been baked in? So not all the headwinds have been baked in. We are what I would describe as going through the bottoming process. So we've had you know about a quarter worth of uh, issues with most of our companies that are particularly related to consumer PCs and handsets. And now we're seeing some of that weakness spread to things like IoT and even industrial IoT. Uh, the two areas that seem to be hanging on really well are, appear to be data center and cloud, and then, and, and then of course, automotive. So we're at a point where, you know, a lot of the chip end markets are going through some digestion of sort, but a couple of end markets are still hanging on. So that's, I would say we're, we're you know, we're into it, and we are looking to come out of uh, this sort of correction for most of the industries and end markets uh, in about a quarter or two. Okay, we'll dive into specific categories, but I want to talk about spending as well, Kumar. When we had the chip shortage, we saw those spending plans um, put into place, really ramp up. Over the last few months, we've seen some of those CapEx plans come back a little bit. Where is that in terms of the bottoming progress? Do you think that there's more cuts to come? I do believe there are more cuts to come. So there is still um, a little bit of excess inventory in handsets. There is still inventory in the PC segment. Um, and, you know, the, the big question mark, of course, with the rise in interest rates is whether autos will hang on or will autos correct. Autos seem to be the last strength along with data centers. So with companies seeing what they're seeing, with companies seeing a weak consumer, I think it's very prudent that they are bringing in some of this, uh, some of the, the CapEx spend. Particularly, you've seen that from companies like uh, that are involved in industrial, that are involved in mobile, that are involved in PC space. Harsh, so what about... Uh, Qualcomm coming up this afternoon and evening. I mean, I guess part of the question is, are smartphones going to surprise to the downside more than uh, in uh, autos and, and industrial IoT surprises to the upside? When I was talking to uh, CEO Cristiano Amon at their Auto Investor Day just a few weeks ago, he was saying, boy, these companies are moving toward uh, electric vehicles, toward ADAS, despite what's happening in the broader economy. So, so does that mean their growth is likely to be stable? So Qualcomm is an interesting one. Um, and, and what's interesting about Qualcomm is it's such a massive player in the handset space. So when you break down the revenues, for example, for Qualcomm, you, know, you get somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50% of revenues that are associated, even more than that, that are associated with handsets. So it's like, in a funny way, it's like turning a ship around. It just takes a long amount of time. Um, you know, they are having some great success in IoT. They're having some tremendous success in automotive. But on a relative basis, those businesses are tiny compared to how much of a player they are in the handset space. And that really is the issue. They're doing all the right things and we love what they're doing. And we do believe that in the next, you know, four to five years, they'll be a very strong player in non-handset related things. But it's just going to take time given the exposure to handsets. Yeah, we, we started the show on that note as well. It's going to take some time. Harsh, thanks so much for being with us. Harsh Kumar, Piper Sandler. After the break, Chegg surging on results. CEO Dan Rosenzweig is with us with that stock still up more than 24%. Don't go away. The White House holding a two-day, 36-country international counter-ransomware seminar. Eamon Javers just spoke with White House cyber czar Ann Neuberger. Joins us with the highlights. Hey, Eamon. 
Deirdre, that's right. They just wrapped up this summit here last night. I spoke to Ann Neuberger this morning. She's the top cybersecurity official here at the Biden White House. And she said one of the pieces of intelligence that the White House shared with those 36 nations was relationships that they're seeing between the price of cryptocurrency and ransomware attacks over the past several years. Take a listen to what she said. As the price of Bitcoin rose, the number of ransomware attacks rose as well. And it makes sense, right, for financial, financially driven criminals. The more money they can make in an operation, the more attracted they are by it. So that's what happened on the rise up in cryptocurrency. A little bit about the rise, the, the decline down in cryptocurrency in one second. She also said, though, uh, that one of the things that they're leaning on now is the insurance sector, which often is responsible for the payouts of a lot of these ransomware uh, bribes that are paid to the ransomware actors. She said the insurance sector here can play a key role in sort of draining the swamp overall in ransomware. Any payment of ransoms increases the growth of ransomware attacks. Right. We greatly discourage any payment of ransoms. Insurance companies can play a very helpful role incentivizing the kind of resilience practices that companies can do to make themselves far less vulnerable to attacks, patching systems quickly, segmenting off sensitive parts of their network, protecting data by encrypting it on their own network. So if it's stolen, an attacker can't use it to blackmail the company. Now, on that question of cryptocurrency, what happens on the backside of the curve when cryptocurrency prices decline? Does that then cause ransomware actors to get out of the ransomware business? I pressed Newberger on that. She wouldn't say that they're seeing that necessarily, but she did say they are hopeful that as cryptocurrency prices decline, one of the effects of that might be that ransomware bad actors find something else to go and do, guys. Back over to you. Amy Javers, thanks so much for bringing that to us. You bet. Let's get a quick check on the NASDAQ. It's down about 1% near session lows, 10,786. Also want to mention that later today, you don't want to miss a very special edition of CNBC Pro Talks with Satori Funds, Dan Niles, of course, a frequent tech check guest. I'll be talking to him at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's 10 a.m. here on the West Coast. And this is for CNBC Pro subscribers only. So you can sign up for that. <laughs> be sure to at CNBC.com pro. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's get a gut check on Match Group. Investors are swiping right on the stock today. It's now up nearly 5%. That's after the company beat revenue estimates for the third quarter, highlighting improvement in Tinder, an area the company is working to reignite growth. Match also noting it's seeing some impact from the deteriorating macro environment, adding it has plans in place to control headcount and marketing-related costs. The stock is still down more than 60% year-to-date, but there are no sell ratings on Wall Street. Tech Tech is back in a moment. Welcome back. Chegg is summa cum laude in this morning's tra uh, trade after beating on the top and bottom lines for the third quarter. This comes just after an FTC consent agreement earlier this week over the EdTech company's security practices. Joining us now, Chegg CEO Dan Rosenzweig. Dan, uh, welcome. Good morning. In, in a way, this mirrors... Six months ago, when the stock went on a bender and was down about a third after earnings, but, but this in the opposite direction, what are the core trends when it comes to your price increases and also when it comes to students being excited about being back at school that's fueling this? Yeah, hey, John. Um, thanks for having me. So what we saw was a return to normalcy in terms of the incoming freshman class and a return of the previous year's freshman class. We still have yet to see, and we expect eventually we will see it, the million and a half students that left during COVID and took jobs. 
that haven't come back yet in any meaningful way. And when they do, that will also boost our business. Um, what we're seeing is trends where students are going to bigger state schools. They're going to historically black colleges uh, and universities. They're going to um, online schools. They're looking for more flexibility and um, and they're taking fewer classes while they're in school and they're taking classes more like 12 months a year rather than over the nine month period. All of these things are good trends for Chegg, uh, but we're seeing a little bit of return to normalcy pre-pandemic. So what does this mean for how you position and I guess continually reposition Chegg for the future of particularly higher ed. Does this mean that uh, mobile becomes more important because students aren't necessarily sitting down at a desk in school in that mode uh, as they might have been in the past? D does it change how you look at academic resources and access to them? Actually, it's a phenomenal question. It, it, it changes the user experience and we're seeing an increase uh, in the US of, of, uh, of app downloads. Uh, for exactly that reason. But what it really changes is a recognition that students have had very little academic support in their life, and that's what we do the best. But now we're adding non-academic support. We're adding things like Calm uh, for meditation um, and stress relief, and we're going to be adding skills uh, to prepare you not only for your first job, but actually make you employable as a result of it. So what students are depending more on from Chegg is the ability to bring them more value, academic, non-academic, and skills, and that will increase our TAM, ARPU, yield, uh, and we're beginning to see some of those things in our results and our profitability. So we actually think the, the future is a lot brighter than the past, and, and we're pretty excited about it. Yeah, Dan, I know last night on the call you talked about the textbook business, how less reliance on that has brought down your marketing costs. I want to ask you, though, about cybersecurity. The FTC has been looking into your practices for data breaches in three years. How much are you investing in cybersecurity now? And what can you tell current or potential students about the safety of their data if they are working with Chegg? Yeah, the first thing I could tell them is I don't really understand what the New York Times article was. These are data breaches from two years ago and four years ago. Um, we had two external ones and two uh, smaller ones internal. We have met and are meeting all of the cybersecurity issues. So this is something where the government makes PR announcements. Uh, we knew the announcement was coming. The Times got a lot of it wrong and had to retract it. But we are very, very careful. For example, we don't store any of your credit card data. Um, we uh, have eliminated a lot of the personal data that we had had over the previous 10 years. We collect a lot less data. The data we collect, though, is all about personalization. It's all about your classes. It's all about what your curriculum is. It's all about what your needs are. It's not the kinds of personal data that other sites collect uh, that we no longer do. So their data is safe. These were, as I said, issues that were between two and four years ago. Um, so we've been in very good shape, have invested heavily, will invest heavily because we understand right. how important it is. So help me understand what you take issue with in the New York Times article, because the FTC has filed a complaint, correct? Are you working with them? We have worked with them. We're, we have an agreement with them. So, so we're just, you... we're meeting ahead, the agreement. So, well, I'm just saying we're meeting the agreement. This is a, for us, this is a, a, a this is something that happened many years ago. Um, and they chose to publish it now. But the agreement we reached was to do things, most of which we've already done. Um, so we're in compliance. It will be in compliance. So I, I, for us, you know, this was a non-issue because it was an issue when it happened. And if you remember, Deirdre, we announced it. We announced it early. Uh, we were one of the first to come out and announce these things ahead of time. We didn't hold it back. Uh, we're very, very big on transparency and communication and privacy. Uh, we were way ahead of these things. So... Um, it's unfortunate that it happened, but I said these are multiple years ago.
And uh, we would point people to the FTC's site where you can read the decision uh, and the agreement if you want to do that. Um, Dan, finally, when, when it comes to who the customer is, you've been very consumer focused up to this point. You know, I just got back from last week, just joined the board of trustees at my alma mater, DePaul University, and so many of the issues you talk about in digital transformation and the needs of students, so many institutions yep. are considering. Do you continue to focus solely on the end user, or is there space for institutions to adopt some of what Chegg is offering as they seek to transform? Yeah, no, great question, and DePaul's a great school, and the former president of DePaul is now the president at, uh, or provost is now the president at Colgate, where my daughter's went, and he's done a phenomenal job. Look, at the end of the day, we have been advocating for over 10 years that schools use technology to expand the curriculum, lower the price, personalize, make sure that students are able to get the support that they need 24-7, as opposed to try to do things like office hours or force everybody to come to campus. These are things that were built for a time that no longer exists. The overwhelming majority of students um, are older. The average age is 25. We're talking about women with children that are in the workforce. So the, thing, the way we love to work with schools is obviously we work with them on areas of making sure that we protect the integrity of education and that we, uh, we've done with Honor Shield. Um, second is we are building all of these skills that we're working with Guild now to go directly to corporations, but those skills can be available directly to students through CHEG and through institutions as well. At the end of the day, 80 plus percent of all students go to college for the sole purposes of becoming more employable. So wherever we can work with schools to increase students' ability to master the material, continue on in their education, and expand the curriculum towards skills, we very much look forward to doing so. And we think it's in the best interest of schools to do it because that's the reason that students go to school. We're seeing a proliferation of, of students now going to large state schools mm. where there's less support, HBCUs, where they're just building the support now, online universities. So, you know, you mentioned mobile earlier, absolutely correct. But at the end of the day, like every other asset in our life on the internet needs to be 24-7, affordable, really valuable, really powerful, uh, excellent quality and personalized in terms of learning. All right. We can work with institutions to do it. We look forward to it. Well, I, I see your shout out to Brian. I raise you a shout out to <laughs> DePaul's new president, who is great, Lori White. Dan Rosenzweig, CEO of Check. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. NASDAQ off session lows, but keep an eye on Airbnb crossing into double digit loss now down. Oh, come back a little bit, down 9%. It was down as much as 10%. More on that and the earnings results that we will see tonight and this week. That's next. Stay with us. Is it time to sell Square? Block is the parent company, of course. Evercore thinks so, adding the parent company to its tactical underperform list, citing increased seller competition, rising interest rates, and cautious credit disbursement from its afterpay acquisition. Those shares ouch down 65% year-to-date. You can read more on this call and other analyst calls on CNBC Pro. And, John, if you sign up right now, you can also watch my talk with Dan Niles in less than an hour. Are you doing a CNBC Pro talk with Dan Niles? <laughs> I am. I think we should tell people about it. <laughs> Be sure to catch that. <laughs> One more thing. Amazon's value dipping below $1 trillion. The tech giant on a six-day losing streak following its third-quarter earnings report. Amazon's market cap hadn't been below the $1 trillion mark since April 2020, the stock now down more than 40% since January, on pace for its worst year since 2008. I would note it hadn't spent that much time, D, 
above the trillion dollar mark yeah. uh, historically, but it was above. Yeah. Still, this mean reversion that we're getting, John, I mean, this brings it back to April 2020. So almost at the very beginning of the pandemic, yep. um, given how much it's built and how much it's hired since then. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.